Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPICAN. My name is Jason Silverman, and I am joined today by my co-host and friend from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, Dr. Peter Liu. Thank How you. you doing, Peter? Thank you. Good. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Like, you know, spring is finally in the air. Yep. The, the weather, even in Edmonton, is starting to warm up, but unfortunately, that means it means a lot of ice on the ground. So walking the dog or or going outside for any kind of activity or exercise is, is kind of dangerous. You take your own life in your hands. Jason, I feel like if there's ice, it's not actually warm yet. Well, the, the, the issue is daytime, <laughs> it's warm enough to start melting oh, things yeah. and then it refreezes at night. And, and the problem is, you know, I think with spring in the air, spring is in my head and I'm starting to think about things like, should I sign up for a race this summer uh, for running and, mm-hmm. and to try and get back into running? Because uh, the pandemic has not been the best for fitness. We, we, right. we, we did get a Peloton, which has helped a lot. I think mm-hmm. I'd be in much, much rougher shape if it wasn't for that, but um, running is its own thing. So I've, I've been doing a bunch of treadmill runs, which is just not the same, but I'm waiting for the day that paths are a little clearer and less dangerous to run outside, but, but looking forward to maybe signing up for some races later in this summer. Nice. I mean, Jason, so as you know, I grew up in California and uh, the weather is perfect year round. I've always wondered, and I love Columbus, like I'm staying here, but don't you ever wonder like, you know, the pioneers making their way across, uh, you know, North America and then it's like freezing for half the year, how they decide they want to stay there. That's where they want to settle. You know what I mean? Well, you know, I can't speak for, you know, settlers um, uh, or First Nations yeah, right. uh, who lived on these lands for, for centuries, yeah. you know, before before the European settlers came. But I have to say that the trade-off, at least here locally, the summers are really beautiful and and nature is astounding. All all parts of the year, but especially in the summertime. And I have to believe that everyone has seen that trade-off and been like, yeah, winter sucks, but then there's summer and it's amazing. Yeah. So um yeah, I, I I can't I can't really justify it. I'm just I'm just making excuses. It's a lot of clouds, you know, like <laughs> but no, I mean I can't I gotta say like Columbus, Ohio right now, I mean it's gonna be in the 70s Fahrenheit. Uh, this week, oh, mm. it's gonna be awesome! <laughs> Just like happy hour patio weather. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go move on snooze. with some announcements. Yeah, okay, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we what don't have that do kind have? of weather just yet. <laughs> Um, so we do have a couple announcements though, in all seriousness. Uh, so first off, uh, this episode is the first of what we hope is going to be a series of episodes in partnership with JPGN, where we highlight some of the important content coming out of, uh, JPGN, which is of course the journal for NASPGAN and SPGAN. This also is, as you 
probably heard on our last episode, our episodes of Bow Sounds are now CME eligible. There will be a link in our show notes to take you to learnonline.naspigan.org to claim your CME after listening to the episode. We also have another new initiative to announce, and that is a brand new pediatric GI Twitter chat that will be launching this week. Thursday, April 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Follow at PedsGIChat or follow the hashtag, hashtag PedsGIChat, and you will be able to participate in an extended conversation about the topic of pediatric acute liver failure with special guest Dr. Mohit Kahar from CHEO in Ottawa. And this is a new initiative that's been created by fellow members of the Naspigan Technology Committee. Shout out to Kevin Watson, uh, Ross Maltz, Rudy Sanchez, and Tamara Hajat, fellow co-host of Bow Sounds. And we're really excited about this and, and follow the, the handle on Twitter to find out more details about upcoming Twitter chats as well. And then I guess the last announcement that we can make is uh, just a reminder to everyone. Uh, again, we brought this up on the last episode, but this year's 50th anniversary NASPEGAN meeting, it's kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, there is going to be a single topic symposium on technology. Yes. And the planning is led by my co-host today, Dr. It's Peter Liu. a planning committee. Okay. We have a whole team, but it is super exciting. I mean, it's going to be October, Wednesday, October 12th. So Block out your calendars now. You definitely want to register. But yeah, you should definitely register. It's going to be super exciting. It's going to be, I think, a symposium that's been, that's totally different than the ones that have come before that are focused on like a disease process, you know? I feel like uh, the program for the symposium this year is really going to be helpful for everyone in GI, regardless of what your niche or niche, however you say it, is. So yes, sign up. It's going to be awesome. And it's going to be in person yes. in Orlando, Florida. The best part. Yes. Can't, so. can't wait. Can't wait. But there's a little time between now and then. So maybe we'll head on to today's topic. And today we're going to talk about pediatric acute liver failure. And acute liver failure in children is one of the scariest conditions we face as pediatric gastroenterologists and hepatologists in that it can progress extremely rapidly. It's life-threatening with a potentially vast differential diagnosis and complex management requirements. And today in the first of the series of JPGN associated episodes, we'll, we'll be covering the recently published North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition Physician Paper on the Diagnosis and Management of Pediatric Acute Liver Failure, recently published in JPGN. We'll try to break down this complex topic with the paper's first author, Dr. Jim Squires. So we were very lucky to get Dr. Squires on the podcast. Dr. Squires is an associate professor of pediatrics. Yeah. He's the associate director of hepatology and the fellowship director of the pediatric transplant hepatology program at the University of Pittsburgh and uh, UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. He's a co-investigator in the Children Liver Disease Research Network, or CHILDREN, an NIH-funded consortium working to improve the lives of children with rare cholestatic liver diseases. He's also the clinical lead for the Starzl Network for Excellence in Liver Transplantation, which is a learning health network of leading pediatric transplant institutions committed to continuous improvement in pediatric liver transplantation. We're so happy to have him join us on this podcast, highlighting this important topic and important position paper from NASPGAN and JPGN. On to the show. 
So, Dr. Squires, thanks so much for joining us on BowSense today. Uh, Jason, thank you for having me. I think, uh, please call me Jim. I think, you know, it would be uh, best moving forward. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to, to talk about uh, you know, this position paper. This is this is my first podcast. And so um, nice. uh, I welcome I welcome the opportunity to uh, to share our work. It's going to be great. That's great. We're, we're honored to be your first. Uh, first of many, hopefully. I, I, I have no doubt. So we're going to start with with what some of our guests find to be the most challenging question, but it's really just a way to get to know you a little bit better. And for our listeners that don't know you already, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Yeah, I've heard you ask others this question. Uh, and I think, um, you know, I, I, it's true. I was at, a, I was at like this leadership course yesterday and, and they asked, you know, how would you want somebody else to describe you? And it, it strikes me, both of these questions kind of sound like you're asking me to write my obituary. Which, um <laughs> I, I'll oblige, right? I mean, I, I so I guess I would I would say, or at least this is what I said yesterday. I you know I would want someone to introduce me as uh, you know a middle aged guy who's a, a good friend and a better dad and is passionate about pediatric liver disease. Nice. Leave it at that. Good. That sounds good. That nails it. Yeah, it was one sentence, so that's it's already in the top like five percent. Exactly. Uh, not, 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 not too many commas, not, not too, too long. Of no, a no. These right. little like uh, codicils attached on and <laughs> sidebars. Yeah. So our second question is also more of a personal question. It started as a way for us to get personal recommendations about what to watch on TV, but tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you'd recommend to us and to the listeners. Yeah, I'm going to disappoint you here. I, I'm like the worst person to ask that question to <sighs> as it relates to movies or tv you know the my trainees here all make fun of me you know i i have i don't belong to any streaming services i don't have wow. cable i don't actually watch tv and i would like to think that that what that consume you know that allows me to do is is to be an avid reader but i probably wouldn't describe myself as that either <laughs> but i would argue that that is because i i kind of um if i get into a book it kind of consumes me right like i'll find myself like reading it on rounds or like stealing away like during my kid's soccer game to read. And so um, I've recognized about this about myself. And so I, I tend to, uh, to, to kind of gravitate towards um, kind of consumable pieces of literature. And so there, uh, you know, I think that, that probably what I look to most would be the New Yorker. I'm a big New Yorker fan. I always start, you know, start with shouts and murmurs uh, and then work my way through the cartoons uh, and then we'll we'll uh, absolutely read almost all of the articles uh, in the New Yorker. So that that's my favorite thing to read. I think for anybody who uh, likes you know literature, fiction, nonfiction, it's a great way to to come across you know shorter consumable stories um, uh, in, in a regular manner. And that I guess could lead to to a movie recommendation, right? Which was I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. I think for those of there who, who know Wes Anderson, he's actually from Texas. I'm from Texas. His his first movie, Bottle Rocket, was filmed kind of in, in a neighborhood that I grew up in. Anyway, fast forward to today, right? Uh, he's also a big New Yorker fan and uh, just released a movie called The French Dispatch, which I have seen, which I did really much enjoy, which is based on essentially the New Yorker and early uh, editors and writers of The New Yorker. And so I would point your your audience to maybe like like the Royal Tenenbaums first, mm -hmm. right? Like get, get introduced, you know, move on to Life Aquatic, check out Moonrise Kingdom, if you jumped right into the French Dispatch and, and didn't know Wes Anderson, you might not appreciate it as much. So uh, you know, maybe work your way up. That would be yeah. my suggestion. Oh, yeah. I love it. That's like a that's, whole, that's like five excellent recommendations. 
Yeah, I, I love it. I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan and uh, The French Dispatch is on my to watch list. I also even watch Fantastic Mr. Fox, even though that's primarily supposed to be a, a children's movie, but it's got that signature Wes Anderson style and and dialogue delivery. Uh, it was great. Yeah, I, that's that, that was like uh, that was our first Wes Anderson movie for my children. More, more to come. Nice. <laughs> I just wanted to point out, I just want to recognize, I feel like I can't gloss over you don't belong to any streaming subscription services. That's like, that's yeah. super Peter impressive. is scandalized. No, I mean, it's like, <laughs> we always talk about like, oh, we're like victims of this attention, blah, 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 culture. Oh, man, you have held out. It's uh, yeah, I have, I have absolutely no credibility uh, when it comes <laughs> to discussing anything remotely you know, pop culturalish with any team, you know, when, whenever people do these icebreakers, I, you know, I fail miserably about my favorite reality TV show or my favorite dreaming service or anything. So <laughs> wow. it's a blessing. I, in so obviously we're going to be talking uh, mostly today about the position paper on pediatric acute liver failure. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about your involvement with JPGN. I'm a relatively new recruit. I, I took over as social media editor in the North American office about a year ago, but you've been involved for quite a while. And in particular, you helped lead a uh, JPGN fellow reviewer initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's all about, what prompted it, and why fellows who are a number of our listeners really should consider getting involved in peer review for JPGN or elsewhere? Um, yeah, sure, absolutely. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. <clears throat> so uh, I am one of the associate editors for JPGN. I'm also relatively new to that position just the past couple of years uh, since uh, editor uh, in chief Sandeep Gupta took over. And, you know, I think this initiative was kind of, it was born out of, you know, conversations about how to engage faculty. You know, I think we, many of us are at academic institutions who have fellows and oftentimes will invite fellows to review uh, articles that come across our desk. Uh, I know me personally. I you know I think it, I actually think it's the first line on my CV from a, like a like a PubMedable uh, you know reference was you know when I was in Cincinnati that's where I did my training. Uh, Mitch Cohen uh, was the division chair there and he invited me to review just review uh, you know a paper on celiac disease that was submitted for JAMA Peds and because of that review it turned into you know an invited commentary uh, and then that invited commentary kind of turned into future efforts and so. You know, I think that that sometimes these things can actually blossom into uh, opportunities that you didn't necessarily see going into it. But at the end of the day, I also think that you know the the skill to review a paper well is critically important, and and something that very few people actually have formal teaching on. Uh, and it's one of those um, learn by doing type of processes. And so what we wanted to do was to really enable fellows to to take that opportunity to to kind of get involved. You know, and I'm not going to lie, right? There there was some some selfish reasons behind it, which is you know getting more reviewers, right? As an editor, for any of you who have been editors or or plan to be, you know, finding a good reviewer is one of the the most challenging things that that we do. And so, kind of, if you will, two birds with one stone. You know, uh, we we look to expand the pool, but to expand the pool to an area where there are really smart, interested people with diverse backgrounds who are looking to actually do this type of learning. So. We, we launched the Fellow Reviewer Program. Uh, it has gone really great so far in its first year. Uh, the way it's designed is that it is for third and advanced fourth-year fellows uh, to kind of sign up. Anybody can sign up. There's no real limitation to who wants to sign up. You have to identify a faculty mentor, so somebody who will 
partner with you at a faculty level to review these papers. But the invitation comes to you, the fellow. It doesn't go to your attending and then have to be trickled down to you. Uh, you can kind of decide if this is a paper that is of interest to you or not. But then it kind of teaches these fellows how to be good reviewers, right? Uh, and, and it forces these partnerships. And it's actually been great. You know, I think it's it's birthed what I think is some kind of even cross-country collaborations. Your mentor doesn't have to be at your institution. It doesn't have to be somebody that's outside uh, your work area. So it can really be anybody who agrees to be your mentor. Uh, that you can kind of team up with. Uh, so, you know, it exposes you to the peer review process. I think it's an educational opportunity for those who uh, want to, to kind of learn. And I think, you know, for anybody who publishes, we recognize that this peer review process is one of the most important things that we do, uh, you know, is, is to make sure that the data that's getting out there is, is sound, is adequate, and will advance the field. Uh, and that only comes from being reviewed by, by those of us who, who are in it. So, uh, it's a great opportunity. You know, I think we're going to be coming up on the second year, obviously, uh, in, in July when, when the fellows roll over. Uh, so for those kind of second year fellows who are rising to become third year fellows or third years who are going on to advanced training, uh, you know, be on the lookout for this opportunity. Um, like I said, uh, you, anybody can sign up and we, we welcome we welcome you joining the team. That's awesome. Sounds great. Yeah, we'll yeah. Uh, include a link to it in our show notes. So, I, I mean, I think the other thing is like as a... A reviewer, I think it also helps you become a better writer, you know, being able to think about like, what are the things that the reviewer is going to pick up on? What are the weaknesses I have to address? And then I also want to clarify. So as a fellow, you wrote a review that was so good. They wanted to invite you to make it a commentary. Uh, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, right? I, I would say that <laughs> Mitch, Mitch Cohen guided me to, to, be, to, to allow me the opportunity to, to do some of these things. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to take any credit. There. Oh, I'm, you should. That's like a legendary thing. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. And so, it, it, was, it was a great experience. Again, I think it was, it was something that um, it was fun to do at the time. Yeah. And a little bit more about you too. So before we talk about the paper, um, how did you personally develop your interest in hepatology and specifically pediatric acute uh, liver failure? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think most people who know me, or if you read the paper and you look towards the senior author on the paper, uh, <laughs> Uh, there is another Dr. Squires who happens to be my father, who also happens to be a, a hepatologist. And so, you know, it would be uh, ridiculous for me to say that that wasn't uh, a bit of an influence on my life, but it, right. it, it wasn't probably as much as most people would think, right? You know, I don't think I knew my dad was a hepatologist or what a hepatologist was until I was probably in, in med school and beyond, right? It wasn't, it wasn't what we talked about around the dinner table. Uh, I'll tell you that. But I think, you know, once I got into medicine and pediatrics, you know, probably my my introduction to liver was in Cincinnati, right? I, I did uh, all of my training in Cincinnati residency fellowship and in my advanced fellowship in liver. Uh, and I think uh, for many of, of those listeners, you know, will know that that Cincinnati has for a long time just been uh, just a leader in hepatology, uh, you know, learning from Bill Balistrieri and Georgie Bezerra, uh, Kathy Campbell, Alex Meathy, Rohit Kohli uh, was there when I was there. Jim Hybe, uh, you know, uh, again, the, the, the wonderful Jim Hybe, who was my mentor, who, who was the person who was assigned to me when I was a, a first day intern uh, to kind of be my faculty mentor when I was in Cincinnati. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think a plug, I just got the, the NASPIGAN email about uh, the, the memorial yeah. for Dr. Hybe that's going to be in May on May 16th. So I would encourage anybody to, to attend that um, um, anyway, uh, so I mean, I think the the group at Cincinnati and and the work that they were doing in pediatric liver disease was inspiring. It really was fun, right? I mean, I, I think you know people talk about inspiration. I just had fun. I thought it was the most interesting uh, folks, the most interesting pathology, and, and so that was kind of my 
intro uh, into pediatric liver and, and what really got me uh, started and, and really got me excited about it. Uh, you know, I think acute liver failure, it, you know, what got me into that, uh, you know, once once I did become a little bit more long in the tooth as it relates to hepatology, you know, was, you know, some of the work there that my dad was doing once I joined uh, the Pittsburgh group, obviously, uh, the pediatric acute liver failure study group, he was the lead PI on, which again, I don't think I knew until I was you know, <laughs> several years ago, yeah. uh, you know, but but I think that, you know, Pittsburgh has always been a leader in, in the field of pediatric liver failure. Uh, I think it's still one of the most fascinating processes uh, or syndromes that we deal with in, in children with liver disease. And so I think for, for all of those reasons, uh, it, it got me excited and it remains one of those things that keeps me excited. So the position paper, I, as a non-hepatologist, you know, I, I think my favorite part may have been the very beginning. The, uh, it's like a little bit of a historical perspective on the term uh, pediatric acute liver failure, like how that came to be. And so how would, how would you say, like, how has that entity or at least our understanding or definition of it evolved over time. And why was this the right time for a position paper on this topic? Maybe I'll, I'll address the, the first uh, question first, or second question first, right? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think that the timing of this, uh, and I, again, I kind of go back to those conversations we were having in that, uh, in that meeting room in Hollywood, Florida, was, you know, recognizing that the, the PALF study group, which again, we kind of give a little bit of history into, uh, was this kind of 15-year study that had spanned from 1999 uh, to 2014, it had involved, you know, uh, uh, multiple centers, international sites, uh, but it had kind of just finished wrapping up. So it had just kind of uh, shut down. Uh, and most of the data was kind of in its final forms uh, of getting published, although there are still papers coming out from, from that data set. Um, but, you know, it was kind of thought that, you know, this was a really good time to kind of go back and look at everything the PALF study group had produced uh, and kind of collectively present that uh, in a manner that could really be, um, you know, distilled down uh, in a way that could act as this this type of a paper, right? To really, uh, you know, provide guidance to, to to those out there that are caring for these children in a way that had evidence behind it, uh, and not just kind of anecdotal experience, and you know, and, and all of you know the cumulative evidence of the PALF study group. And so I think that's why people felt like it was a good time to do this. Um, uh, and again, I think that there is kind of a, a next iteration of pediatric acute liver failure investigation that was about to launch. And I think that, that uh, you know, having this paper in place really felt like it was, it, it was, a, it was a good moment for it. You know, I, but I think it's also important to recognize when you're talking about something like PALF, that there is a history uh, to PALF. And, and uh, I, what it sounds like uh, you are as well, Peter, is, you know, a little bit of a history buff. I just kind of like historical perspectives of things. And so, you know, part of the history component was just kind of, it was fun. It was fun to write. It was fun to go back and kind of uh, think about. But it's also important to recognize that, you know, and we mentioned this in the paper, we now talk about pediatric acute liver failure as if it is a, a diagnosis, right? As if it is a single thing or as if it is clearly defined. Uh, when in reality, you know, uh, the, the, the quote unquote definition that we use for pediatric acute liver failure, which was the entry criteria designed for the initial study, is really just that. It's an entry criteria. So it's not a, a definition and it was never really meant to be the definition. It has evolved. I think most of us now use it as a as a definition, but we maybe shouldn't, you know, or at least I think it's interesting to think about should we or shouldn't we. But, but I think it, part of it was recognizing that when we talk about pediatric liver failure, everyone will kind of roll off those same three bullet points of elevation of INR, no chronic liver disease with or without encephalopathy. But that was really, you know, those were entry criteria for a prospective study uh, that was looking to, to understand 
uh, and and studied this phenomenon. Not so much uh, was it proposed as the set in stone definition of acute liver failure. Yeah. So I think that's why we probably started with the historical perspective. Yeah, I think it's it's always fascinating to like. I mean, obviously, acute liver failure in children has been happening, you know, for all time, maybe. But it's like cool to like hear those uh, observations of you know a physician or a scientist who noticed, oh, this boy became yellow and then he died. You know, it's fa- anyways. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> it, I found it really also interesting. Just all of us, I think, in some ways, maybe recognize that. Jim, you said you're you're a bit of a history buff. In in a sense, we're all living history, right? We're all living through historical times because 20 years from now, people will look back at the era that we're living in and view us uh, and this era as history. But it was fascinating to me just to read about really how how short the sort of concerted effort to study this phenomena and this syndrome has been. And so we, we are still relatively early in our understanding of this phenomenon. And hopefully, you know, this, this helps kind of push more people to be interested in driving that research and driving that understanding further, but just understanding that we're beyond the, Oh, this child turned yellow and died. Wonder what happened there. But only for so long. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think it. You know, I think it's fascinating. I think people will definitely look back on this podcast and consider it historical for many reasons. <laughs> um, well, right. Well, thank you. We'll we'll take our place in the time capsule gladly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, there's there's a lot of granular detail in the paper. We're not going to have time to go through the entire paper. Obviously, the whole point of focusing on this is we will be you know throughout encouraging our listeners to read the paper for themselves and go through all the details. But I thought it would be helpful to highlight some of the sort of overview or high-level content in the paper, because I think that really helps frame a perspective on this syndrome. Can, can we start by talking about the natural history of PAL for pediatric acute liver failure and how this informs the approach to diagnosis and management? Uh, yeah, sure. You know, so I think one of the you know natural history in PALP is kind of a funny term, right? I think because as we all recognize, uh, or if you haven't yet, you will. You know, the quickness with which PALP can progress is one of the most terrifying things about the, the process or about the syndrome. And so, yeah, I think in, in many other disease processes, we talk about natural history as you know maybe a days or or, or you know weeks, you know sometimes months or even years type of a process. You know, in PALP, this can really be hours. You can have a patient admitted in the morning who seems stable and okay, who by the evening is intubated in the ICU and listed for liver transplant. Uh, and so I think that natural history is a little bit maybe of a misnomer, right? Uh, it, it, it's more of, you know, how, the what is going to be the, the progression of this, of this disorder, of this syndrome? You know, and I think recognizing that's one of the most important things about the syndrome or about about uh, PDFQ liver failures is recognizing, you know, the signs that suggest, you know, one is deteriorating very quickly uh, and how, how you support that, how you prevent that. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, what you do to fix it. And I mean, given that rapid time course, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, I mean, the, the differential is also quite broad. You guys go through a lot of different etiologies, potential etiologies in the paper for the person who's like the clinician who's there, can you walk us through some of the important elements of the history and physical that would kind of guide our next steps? Like, what does that patient look like? 
Well, I mean, it, it's incredibly variable, right? Mm-hmm. They can look abundant, intubated in the ICU. They can look relatively stable uh, talking to you, and you feel like this patient doesn't even need to be in the hospital, um, uh, right? And so I think you need to to, to recognize, um, uh, you know, the, the variability of what a patient can look like, even though, again, I, I come back to, you know, uh, they, they have, quote, met a definition of, of acute liver failure based on really, you know, kind of labs, uh, right, and, and what we're seeing in, in the synthetic function of the lab. I would say, I guess, one of the most important things, right, we, I guess, mentioned this in the paper, that the clinician needs to do early in the course is recognize you know, where this patient is at both physically, right, and in their disease course and where they may be going. And what I mean by that is obviously uh, liver transplant is an intervention for acute liver failure that can be life-saving. It can uh, absolutely prevent death in a subset of patients. And so uh, whether this child is at a center that is comfortable with that or can offer that is something that I think really needs to be top of mind uh, for those who are caring for these kids. Uh, And if they are not there, um, making sure that you are in connection with a, a center that can offer that if they progress to, to looking to need that, right? Because I think, um, you know, obviously wanting to avoid a child who decompensates quickly and then becomes, you know, unstable for transplant uh, is is something that we, we would all like to avoid. And so I think recognizing uh, or respecting uh, the, the syndrome in that manner, I think is going to be critically important. You know, from a physical exam standpoint, what a lot of the data has shown over and over and over again is one of the most important factors is is the presence of encephalopathy. Now, encephalopathy in children is incredibly challenging, and this is one of the reasons the initial diagnosis included uh, with or without encephalopathy uh, as an entry criteria for the study. You know, on the adult side, in, P- in adult acute liver failure, you know, they all require encephalopathy as an entry criteria for their study. You have to be encephalopathic to meet the entry criteria definition for acute liver failure. In kids, we've recognized that, you know, trying to assess encephalopathy in clearly a neonate uh, is challenging, right? But even a two, three, four, eight-year-old who's sick, who's in the hospital, who's irritated, you know, you can't do serial sevens with a six-year-old, right? And so I think uh, recognizing some of the limitations on how we assess encephalopathy in a child, uh, particularly on a physical exam, uh, makes that challenging. But that is one of the most important things uh, someone needs to feel comfortable doing, um, is is constantly going back and, and assessing, is this child look like they're progressing from an encephalopathy standpoint? Because ammonias reflect encephalopathy, but they are not, you know, there's not a straight line between a level of an ammonia and, and encephalopathy in a child. So you can be encephalopathic with ammonias in the upper double digits, um, and you can be completely cognizant with an ammonia of 150. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we have to uh, recognize that and, and not just look at the lab and say, oh, the ammonia is you know, not too terrible, so I'm comfortable. Right. Um, uh, looking for encephalopathy on physical exam is probably the most critical thing that that we do uh, with these children. Yeah, yeah I think that for a lot of us in medicine, we're always sort of taught to not multitask in some ways and to really focus on the problem. But this, given the time course of these uh, children and particularly you know, some of these neonates, uh, you really don't have that luxury of focusing on one aspect of their clinical care at one time. And so that sort of concurrent, continuous monitoring, particularly of things like encephalopathy, thinking about where physically the patient needs to be while you are starting to think about your initial investigations and carrying out that detective work to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. is is really important. It'll just point our listeners to figure two in the paper, which really sort of helpfully 
breaks that down in terms of that initial stabilization and disposition sort of planning. But speaking of those sort of initial investigations and the differential diagnosis, obviously there's a large number of potential causes for pediatric acute liver failure. There still remains a large chunk of children and infants who ultimately are felt to have, you know, quote unquote, indeterminate pediatric acute liver failure, which just means we haven't discovered that cause yet, or, you know, it's multifactorial. Can you help us sort of categorize the differential diagnosis just in broad groupings and how we might conceptualize or think of the different causes? And and then maybe I'll come back to talking a little bit more about that indeterminate group. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we talk about this as well, right? Which is that, you know, when when children present with acute liver failure, you know, they're, they're, you really have to have a, a multi-pronged approach to how you're dealing with them, right? You you need to you need to be monitoring them, right? You need to come up with a plan uh, to serially monitor for progression of their liver disease, for potential involvement of of extrahepatic disease processes like the kidney, like the brain, uh, like other organs, you know. And, and so you need to have this plan in place to see how the liver is progressing and how the disease or the the syndrome is potentially evolving. But you also need to support and prevent things from occurring, right? So if you're seeing, uh, you know, kidney function decline, or if you're noticing uh, respiratory distress, you have to understand, you know, when you need to intervene, when certain uh, organs begin to become involved and potentially shut down. Uh, but then, you know, maybe most, I don't want to say most importantly, uh, but, but, you know, as importantly is, is working up the diagnosis and figuring out how you're going to ultimately uncover what is going on in this child that's in front of you, you know, potentially decompensating. And, you know, I think various people will group uh, how they think about acute liver failure differently, right? Do you do it kind of in a kind of a systems-based approach, right, or, or a problem-based approach where, you know, it's like, is it infection? Is it autoimmune? Is it metabolic? Is it, you know, drug toxin? You know, what, what's the kind of broad stroke driving factors? Uh, other people will do it more age-based, right? Uh, is this a neonatal acute liver failure? Is this a toddler and acute failure? Is this an adolescent and acute liver failure? And probably a combination of the two is best, right? Um, you know, I think you know, one of the things that did come out of the pediatric acute liver failure study group um, and I think this was really highlighted in, you know, I think Mike Norkowitz, who's the senior author on a paper, I think it was like in 2018, was, you know, A, uh, looking at, you mentioned indeterminate, right? But how over time we have, from, you know, kind of the three phases of, of the initial PALF study uh, that were broken up kind of into five-year chunks. You know, over time through those phases, we have gotten much better at decreasing that piece of the pie that is indeterminate. And that has been in parallel with kind of recognizing kind of in what order uh, we, we send off these diagnostic studies to uncover uh, and recognizing that there is probably a, a prioritization that one needs to think about when you have an individual child is, you know, this is less likely, this is more likely. So we need to send these diagnostic tests to actually identify uh, this child. Uh, that we do that quicker, right? That we're able to kind of do that in, in a manner that's timely for the patient. And, and so, you know, uh, but then within that is recognizing that that there are age-based differentials for children and thinking about specific age of the child, uh, are there certain tests that we should be sending off ahead of time, right? Because, you know, the, we can all list off all the tests we'd like to send off in a kid with acute liver failure. But if you give that list to the nurse, it may take several days uh, and even longer in the babies where we're all limited by blood uh, draws uh, to, to, to eventually get all those tests sent. And so, you know, if that child decompensates and gets a transplant two days later, uh, you, you didn't know. Uh, and, and so that kid was indeterminate in phase one, whereas maybe in phase three of the study, 
where we recognized how we should prioritize sending off these tests a little bit better, we were able to identify the diagnosis in that child and potentially intervene to to prevent transplant. You you mentioned that there are lots of different ways of kind of slicing things. What are some of the large categories, the buckets of causes that that we are looking at for many of these these children? Well, the largest bucket, uh, regrettably, is still indeterminate. And again, I think that there's likely a lot of determined causes in there uh, that we just either didn't get around to discovering in an individual child uh, because either death or transplant intervened or they got better, uh, right? I mean, that's that's maybe the, we should start with that, right? So sometimes these kids just get better, right? They don't decompensate. Uh, they get better on their own despite us you know, not intervening. Um, and if they get better, maybe someone just stops looking for why they had initially presented because they're getting better and we just get out of the way. Uh, you know, but I think you know the, the kind of big buckets obviously are you know uh, indeterminate remains the largest uh, single cause. But I think you know things like uh, infection. I think infection, particularly in maybe more third world countries than uh, the United States, but infection is still a major cause. Obviously, in the older population, Tylenol toxicity, whether it's an intentional uh, overdose or a therapeutic misadventure, uh, we still definitely see that uh, in, in the older uh, children. You know, that's the number one cause in adults, right? Tylenol toxicity. And then, you know, I think moving around, uh, you know, you have your autoimmunes, you have your metabolics, you have your mitochondrials, um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, these, these pieces of the pie are various sizes, uh, you know, sometimes based on, you know, how, how old the child is, but, but they still can span ages, many of them. And so you have to be thinking about uh, them all broadly, probably in most children. So I was going to say, you know, you had mentioned um, how the different etiologies are, you know, have to be prioritized. They also differ by age. And a lot of the testing that um, is involved, the paper really outlines well in, uh, I think it's like table four, including like, you know, what age ranges um, these tests should be considered in. But just kind of broadly, I know you're, I'm asking you to summarize like a one page table, but um, but how do you think about like, how would you describe what tests, you know, you think about for everybody and then which ones are maybe for less than three months and for older kids? How would you kind of describe how you guys categorize those things? I mean, again, I, I think, you know, uh, different hepatologists may come at this in, in different uh, ways. And so, you know, I would encourage all folks to kind of, you know, pick the brains of their local hepatologists and see how they all think about this. Mm-hmm. You know, I generally think about, you know, if I'm looking at a neonate, I think the big buckets are gestational alloimmune disease. Uh, I think it's viral infection. I think it's metabolic. Uh, and I think it's mitochondrial. Those are kind of the four big buckets of that. I think if it's, uh, you know, a toddler age kid, I think many of those things carry over. Obviously, gold uh, falls off that list, right? Uh, you don't present at, uh, you know, nine months with gold. But I think many of the, uh, you know, the metabolics are still there. Uh, and that's probably the, the the population that has the most indeterminate, right? That kind of uh, one to five, six-year-old, right? I think those are the kids where probably we need to do the most to, to better uncover what exactly they have. But, you know, I think in addition to some of those that affect kids, you're starting to see more things that can be autoimmune related. These things like uh, HLH kind of starts to creep in. And obviously, you know, uh, as they get older, you think more about uh, Wilson's disease and uh, drug toxicities, right? And so I think, you know, that that's kind of my broad approach. And then within that, what I also really try to focus on, one of the things that I kind of hammer home with my trainees is within those buckets, what can I fix, right? Because if this child has a disease process that I can identify and prescribe a treatment, right? Acyclovir for HSV or, uh, you know, exchange transfusion and IVIG for gold, or obviously NAC 
for for uh, Tylenol toxicity. You know, then those are the things I really want to try to identify first. You know, I definitely want to get to the bottom of it no matter what. Uh, but if I get to the bottom of it and it, I say, well, I can't fix this, that's fine. But I want to make sure I didn't uh, miss something that I could have intervened on at an earlier time point to hopefully change the trajectory in, in the kid. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to to prioritize things that you can do that are going to change that natural history, if you will, uh, bend, bend the curve in children that might otherwise deteriorate without intervention. You, you've talked a little bit about this earlier in terms of the complications of acute liver failure in children that need to be managed along with the investigation and along with perhaps prepping for transplant or, or other interventions to deal with the liver itself. And I'll, I'll direct the listeners to table five of the paper where you cover kind of in depth some of these complications. But in general, what are the most important things that we need to be paying attention to or having on our mental list of making sure that we are ticking these boxes and and identifying these concerns. You, you mentioned obviously encephalopathy, which is a, a major complication that is also a clinical marker of deterioration. So it's important to be keeping tabs on that. And there are certain things that we can try and do to, to intervene. But what are some of the other complications? And, and maybe you can also explore a, a little bit about what you do for encephalopathy. Yeah, sure. So uh, again, I mean, I think encephalopathy is probably the most uh, dramatic and traumatic complication that one should watch for. This is also an area where we really need more study, right? Uh, you know, do we cool these kids? Do we put bolts in? Do we, um, you know, how do we, um, you know, should we be monitoring with EEG, right? I think there are uh, certain centers where there are very different approaches to how this is monitored for and cared for. Uh, and I don't think that right now anybody has the best evidence that's going to drive this field. I think we we need more study in this area. You know, but I think any multi-organ dysfunction is going to be important, right? Uh, and this includes things like electrolyte disturbances. You know, one of the things that we follow a lot is, is phosphorus levels, obviously, right? Uh, you know, these livers are obviously very sick and very injured. And seeing the phos level drop is, is a suggestion that the, the liver may be trying to regenerate, right? It's trying to kind of uh, use that FOS to make ATP and regenerate. And so trying to keep their FOS levels uh, in a range that is healthy is one of the things that we focus on a lot here. You know, I think getting the ammonia down, recognizing that, you know, we still do think it contributes to cerebral edema and, and the development of uh, herniation. How one does that, I think, is also an area I think that people need to study a lot more. Do you put these kids on, uh, you know, renal support? Do you forese them? Uh, do you start scavengers in medical therapy? At the end of the day, a lot of people will do many of these things because th this kid is kind of uh, de decompensating in front of you. You may have listed them for transplant, but organs aren't available. And so you will kind of pull out all the stops, if you will, to, to try to, to manage this kid as best you can. But no one's ever been able to study, uh, you know, how effective any one of these interventions are. And again, for those of us that have been at different institutions, you may see very different approaches to how aggressive various providers are with this, right? And and, and how how you work with your ICU folks to really implement many of these bridging strategies, because that, that is really what they are, right? You're just trying to keep this child alive, either long enough to get them to transplant or long enough that their liver begins to recover. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's what you're trying to do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that lots of complications. One of the things I think that, that we also talk about in this paper is not to necessarily overcorrect for certain numbers. I think a lot of people look at that INR, uh, and, and that's again, the marker that everyone's looking at to see how the liver's doing. And so they see it go up to three, four five, and everybody wants to start giving factor and products to correct that number. I think 
most of the liver docs I think that you talk to will recognize that while you are losing your kind of you know anticoagulation factors, you're also losing your procoagulant factors, right? So you kind of lose all factors and that there's likely a degree of kind of homeostasis, right? Uh, that these kids have where although the INRs are four, five, six, uh, they may not necessarily be at an increased risk of bleeding. Clearly, kids can bleed, and bleeding can be a devastating complication of this. But you also have kids that can have, you know, portal vein thrombosis in the setting of acute liver failure. And so there's more to this, you know, coagulation issue than just the INR, and particularly in the small kids, right? I think this is where sometimes we do get into trouble, where there's a a little baby infant who's in acute liver failure, where uh, you know people will get very anxious about the INR going up because they're worried about an intracranial hemorrhage or another complication, and so they'll give lots of product, lots of a factor to keep those numbers down. And then you end up, you know, kind of flooding the lungs and causing fluid overload and needing to be intubated. And so I I think that there's an art to managing some of these kids uh, and not necessarily just treating the numbers. You know, again, it can be terrifying to watch somebody's INR go from three to five to six, but if there's no active bleeding and if there's no immediate intervention planned, you know, sometimes I will try to sit on those kids as long as possible uh, and not uh, get overly aggressive about treating just the number, because I think sometimes we can we can get into more trouble by fluid overloading, particularly the little ones who can't handle it very well. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, not only about, you know, what we should be watching out for and, and knowing that could be coming our way, but also prudently managing the complications or the potential complications that you're seeing so that you don't cause more problems. Nothing's worse than seeing something happening and then, you know, iatrogenically causing a new problem that the child doesn't need. Like this conversation is making me appreciate my hepatologist and transplant hepatologist so much more. But, you know, moving on. So I, you mentioned that liver transplant obviously can be life-saving for many of these patients. And, uh, you know, one of the first things you said was, you know, when you are first seeing that patient, you have to start thinking about, do you have the team around you that's uh, able to do that if it's necessary. But other other than that and like timing preparation, like what are, are there other things that can be done to improve survival for those patients who may need a liver transplant? Well, I mean, again, this is, this is where we talked about some of those interventions that sometimes can be, uh, you know, kind of you know, pulled out, uh, you know, generally in the ICU setting, right? Yeah. Do you forreach them? Do you put them on renal replacement therapy? Do you have the ability to do something like a MARS uh, intervention you know, which, which, you know, kind of acts as a, as a extracorporeal uh, liver type system. So there are lots of things people have done and reported on, uh, you know, some have shown success in very small numbers. I don't think any have shown global success. And so I think this is an area that just, you know, it requires us to, to learn more. Um, I don't think anybody would be wrong by suggesting any one of these things in, in the appropriate clinical setting. Uh, but I think uh, it's recognizing that uh, you know, a lot of it will have to do with what is your kind of institutional comfort, your institutional's ability uh, to provide these types of therapies, and you know how one may think that this may change the clinical outcome. You know, there's some kind of really cool scientific, fun stuff that people are doing or have reported on in very small numbers, like auxiliary liver transplants. Uh, you know, where you put like a partial lobe into a child to kind of give them enough uh, capacity to to kind of survive or again, bridge to transplant or bridge to recovery, you know, at which point, you know, if, if they go to transplant, you obviously take out uh, that auxiliary graft. If they get better, you can just kind of stop immunosuppression and, and let the graft kind of go. You know, I think that the King's College group has published on uh, liver cell-based therapy where they kind of have these liver cell beads uh, that they inject into the peritoneum and into kind of the kidney capsule to kind of allow, in theory, right, again, allow enough, you know, 
hepatocyte mass uh, to be able to handle some certain level of function, uh, at least to try to you know prevent some of the most severe complications. Yeah, I think that one's only really ever been published as a as a you know, we were able to inject the beads, right? I don't right. think that it's it was shown to actually change anything. But there, there's a lot of things that people are uh, doing. You know, I think. Um, historically people have done stuff like hooking patients up to animals, right. Using animal livers uh, to kind of help clear toxins. You know, uh, you know, there's been discussions about, you know, would you use parents right in that type of setting for a kid? And so again, I mean, lots of kind of exciting and terrifying stuff. Um, uh, I think that, that uh, people have talked about in the past, none of it has um, risen to the level where uh, we we can draw definitive conclusions, but I think it's an area that I think is is excited for future discovery. Um, it, it's been great having a chance to give sort of an overview of of this really comprehensive paper, and there is obviously a lot to it. Besides, you know, read the paper, which all of our listeners should be doing. Are there any other takeaways that you would want our listeners to leave with that you feel we haven't covered yet today? Well, let's see. I, you know, I guess you know. Besides, read the paper. Maybe what I would say is, you know, next time you are fortunate or unfortunate enough to have one of these patients, I would say go to the bedside. Right? You know, th- this is one of these syndromes where you really need to experience it when you when you see it. Uh, you need to be there doing the exam. You need to to be present for seeing how they can decompensate. And so. You know, I think you can read every book chapter and look at every review article and table about hepatic encephalopathy. But until you're trying to do an exam on a child uh, to determine whether or not they have it, it it doesn't it's not going to be as helpful. Right. And so I think this is one of those situations where you know, being physically present with the patient, doing a good clinical exam, doing it repeatedly is going to be you know critically important to understand uh, how this process is evolving. So uh, I would say that, um, you know, really try to to go to the bedside when these patients come in uh, and, and watch how they uh, progress or hopefully get better uh, is going to be critically important. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, thanks again for kind of going through. It was really cool to hear kind of the story, I guess, behind the position paper and also get some of the insights that are hard to capture in text. But changing the focus a little bit to you and your career thus far, so looking back, so the question we ask all of our guests, what do you think has been the most valuable advice you've received personally? And what advice do you have for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of uh, platitudes are out there, but I think one of the ones, and I, I forget, uh, you know, who told me this or in, in kind of what context it was even given to me, right? But essentially it's, you know, it's it's don't accept work where you're not learning, right? And and this maybe will kind of ties into my advice to to kind of fellows and trainees, right? Which is, yeah, I've been to all the fellows conferences, right? We've been to plenty of kind of work-life balance talks and all those things. And inevitably, there's a talk about like learning to say no. And I always have to be careful, right? And people call me this all the time. But but those talks, I inherently have issues with some of those talks sometimes. Because inevitably, you know, if, if you say no enough, people are going to stop asking. Right. Uh, and, and with almost every opportunity, I go back to, you know, my editorial with Mitch Cohen, right? You know, if someone asks you to review a paper, you may be like, I don't have time to review a paper. And I don't see why that's going to necessarily benefit me too much at all right now in my current state. But you never know, right, uh, where it's going to lead um, unless you say yes. You don't want to overextend yourself, say yes, and not meet the expectations. I get that. But I think with any opportunity, there is likely something to learn that you would learn from it, even if you didn't see that you know, at the onset. And so I really encourage particularly young junior faculty and trainees, if an attending, particularly an attending who, who you respect and who you like to work with, comes with you with an opportunity 
if you can find it within your capacity to, to jump on board, you're going to learn something. Uh, it may open a door you, you hadn't foreseen, and it'll encourage them next time something comes across their desk to ask you again. Uh, and that just builds uh, and opens more doors and more opportunities, and, and it keeps it fun. At least it has for me. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's good advice to look for the learning opportunity in something, even if it the topic area or the specific project doesn't immediately sound like something that uh, you, you might want to do to step back and think about what you might gain out of it. I think that's really good advice. I mean, I think um, it also matters, like you were saying, like where it comes from. You know, if it's someone that is your mentor, you know, they're going to advocate. They're not just trying to push work off on you. Then, you know, maybe they know something you don't. They probably do. You know, I feel like that's a valuable thing to think about, too. I hope you don't get a lot of angry calls about the, you know, work-life balance. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, That's I'm okay. I'm all for work Right. You know what? It, it, it's a common thread among the this conversation when we when we ask our guests about, you know, advice they have been received and advice they would give. The variation on take on possible tasks because where they might lead you is great versus don't say yes to everything. Um, there's clear attention there, but I but I think every time we hear some variation on it, there's a new angle or or nugget there to maybe help our our learners and junior faculty navigate that and and maybe learn the how to thread that needle because um, I think that's that's the key is is learning the balance between those two ends of the scale. Um, this has been a, a really great conversation. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today, Jim. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Uh, I would say nothing as it relates to PALF, right? I mean, I think in, in life, I'd just say, you know, do good work, right? And, and uh, you know, be be happy and keep in touch with those you love. But, you know, it was a pleasure to join you guys today, right? I, I think this was a, this is a great thing that, that I think you do. I'll I'll have to uh, try to be on more podcasts, right? Uh, and I think you know any anything that I can do to to help in the future, let us know. But I think it's a great opportunity. It's great to to engage uh, those who who can consume media via podcasts and uh, and advance you know some of the interesting articles that are coming uh, through uh, JPGN and, and from NASA. Thanks Thank again you. for joining us. That was an awesome conversation. Yep. Well, that was a great episode with Dr. Squires. Really helpful to break down that complex topic and give our listeners and our and us uh, a kind of a great overview of what are some of those sort of initial considerations when facing a case of pediatric acute liver failure, and just sort of the approach to that sort of simultaneous early management, triage, and thinking about where the child needs to be while progressing down further workup. Yeah. Uh, super helpful. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. Uh, one, tell somebody about the podcast, anybody, a fellow, a trainee, somebody you work with, a friend. Uh, two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It, those uh, five-star reviews really do help other people to find our podcast. 
And three, uh, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. And you can also get there through www.naspgan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. All right. Thanks for listening. Do your CME. Bye. Bye, everybody. Register for the Single Topic Symposium. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Bye.